Our future and the future of the planet is dependent on changing the current food system. We are going to end up in a crisis situation. Food systems are failing. We're on track for a future where the world is hungry. The planet is spent and our health and diets fail us. But we can take action now to make sure that doesn't happen. I'm Adverly Richmond. I'm James Wong. I'm Poppy Okocha. And we're bringing you the story of humanity, food and our planet from the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. This is Unearthed, journeys into the future of food. Kew is collaborating with partners internationally to share resources and solve some of the critical problems facing humanity and the world we live in today. We can solve these problems. We are solving these problems, but we all have a role to play. Here in the UK at Kew sites at Richmond in London and Wakehurst in Sussex, scientists and plant experts are working towards future-proofing food for us all. By the end of this series, we'll reveal how you, your shopping basket and global science will change the world. I'm sitting in my writing room right now. It's an organised chaos that only I can fathom, of course. Surrounding me are texts and notes that help me trace stories of plant history from across the planet. From unusual objects and anecdotes to individuals or epic historical movements. By looking at plant history, you can start to understand why two people on different sides of the world can look at a landscape and see the same plants, crops or vegetation. That's because the movement of people through centuries has changed the borders, boundaries and natural habitats of everything we call wild. To be a plant and garden historian, you also have to be a social historian. We've always depended on plants for food, medicine, building materials, firewood and shelter. But what has that got to do with how we eat, cook, farm and provide today? Well, everything, because some of it just isn't working anymore. Across this series, Royal Botanic Gardens Q have invited me, James and Poppy to dig into how our relationship with food is problematic, but also how we can use plant science, technology traditional practices and history to inform and change our behaviour today, including something as simple as what you're eating for dinner tonight. Did you know that some of our most beloved kitchen cupboard favourites could be extinct in just a few years? Bananas, chocolate, coffee. Now you're listening. But what about the basic stuff, wheat, potatoes, rice? Don't believe me? It's true. You've seen the climate changing and the oceans rising, but the other crisis staring us in the face is what our grandchildren are going to be eating when they're our age. Without the work that Q and its partners are doing, looking at wild genes and diversity of different crops, we could see a very different plate of food in front of our grandchildren and maybe great-grandchildren in the future. And what about the food industry? 
will need to take a look at that too, with some straight-talking guest chefs and innovators who are leading the way in their own kitchens. When it comes to hospitality generally and restaurants specifically upholding their part of the bargain, I personally don't think anybody's moving fast enough on that. Food waste is one of the biggest problems facing humanity today. We were looking at businesses that each year throw away over a million tonnes of perfectly good food. That's equivalent to 2.4 billion meals. And on the other hand, we are seeing the cost of living crisis unfold with devastating effects. Research by the Food Foundation showed that last month, 2 million people in the UK went without eating for 24 hours because they could not afford to put food on the table. And even if you're making great ingredient choices and minimising waste in your own kitchen, the plants we're eating just aren't as nutritious as they used to be. We're losing the ability to grow food. 60% of our calories come from just four plant species. Soya, rice, corn and wheat. Some of the major crops have been bred in a way that they've lost some of the micronutrients. So it's not only a question of quantity of food, we really need to ensure the quality of food. Modern farming practices and the pressure to turn over a high crop yield for an ever-booming population, and all at a low, low price. Well, that's meant traditional farming practices have been binned in favour of those which degrade our soils and diverse environments. It's economics at the end of the day. The farmer will grow what they can sell. So there needs to be incentives for farmers to invest in good quality seed. So why do we need to act now? Because it's too late to act yesterday and nature is already punching back. Roaring fires continue to sweep through the Australian state of New South Wales. Many have been evacuated from their homes. France has suffered its driest July on record, with wildfires destroying 6,000 hectares of forest in the Gironde region. Three storms named Dudley, Eunice and Franklin hit the UK in the space of one week. Over one million homes were left without power. Our way of life is under threat. That's not just you and me facing increasing heating bills this winter. Around the world, livelihoods, homes and resources are under threat due to our changing climate. The security of the lives we cherish might not exist for our children and their children's children. It's really easy to get distracted or feel helpless in the face of all this terrible news. But the truth is the climate, the environment and our resources and practices are connected. By starting with the food we eat, we can understand how. How about we head out into the gardens at Kew for a bit? I'll see you in the Palm House right after your history lesson. I'm Dr Caroline Cornish. We're here today in the kitchen gardens at Kew. I'm a historian and I'm an honorary research associate at Kew. How did human beings get from being hunter-gatherers to their Ocado deliveries? 
Around 250,000 years ago, people started to have hearths in their homes. And this is when archaeologists tend to agree that people were cooking food within their dwellings. After that, I think the next huge step forward was the move from human beings being hunter-gatherers to being agriculturalists. And this was around 12,000 years ago. Agriculture started in what we now refer to as the Near East and arrived in Northern Europe by about 6,000 years ago. Now I'm going to make a massive leap forward at this point to 1492. This is when Christopher Columbus arrived in the New World. This heralded in a whole era of exploration and lots of edible plants were brought back to Europe by these explorers, usually in the form of seeds and introduced to Europe and many of them, of course, eventually found their way to Britain as well. For Britain, the next thing to probably remember is what is sometimes referred to as the Agricultural Revolution. This was a series of events from the late 17th through the 19th century and it's an era of experimentation, of some increased mechanisation. It's a move to large-scale farms. The downside of this is it was the period of enclosure. Landowners would often take away common grazing rights and growing rights and absorb common land into large agricultural farms. Following on from the agricultural revolution, we ought to think about the industrial revolution. And of course, what this means for food is that people move to the cities, the towns. It's a period of massive urbanization. And really, this is the time when people start to become alienated from the sources of their food because they're not producing their own food anymore. However, it heralds in the era of the grocer. By 1844, we have the first co-op store, and this continues throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. This is aided by a lot of technological advances over this time. A really big hike in agriculture was experienced over the 1950s and 60s. This period is sometimes referred to as the Green Revolution. Although in many ways, with its reliance on monocultures, that's on single crops, it's not what we understand as green agriculture in, in 21st century terms. We have the invention of canning, so that we can preserve various foods long term. And there are various experiments throughout the 19th century with forms of refrigeration, so that by the end of that century, we have electric refrigerators although they don't really take off in homes until the 1920s. We are sitting by the Temperate House at Kew. I'm Dan Saladino. I'm a food journalist, a broadcaster, and the author of Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. What can be considered a success story in the 20th century of providing so many calories to the world? We came up with scientific technological breakthroughs that produced vast amounts of wheat, rice and maize and other crops that became commodities. That meant that more of us could become disconnected from the land, from farming. Food prices went down, abundance went up. 
And in a sense, that I think is why so many people now don't really need to worry about where their food comes from. And yet, at the same time, it's that intensive phase of production that's contributed to many of the problems we face now. One of the main drivers over the centuries of the loss of diversity in our food has been colonization. And wherever you look in the world, say in Australia or in the Americas or Africa, there are indigenous traditional food systems based around huge amounts of diversity that have been lost and replaced in many cases with monocultures. And we see the disappearance in many communities of traditional farming systems and also traditional diets. Diversity has been a huge part of our evolutionary history. And it's only in the last 12,000 years, which isn't that long in, in terms of human history, that we've started to create these bottlenecks. And that's because of our shift from being hunter-gatherers to agriculturalists. I think we've ended up with so many challenges facing us about the future of food, but very little awareness. It did produce a huge amount of calories, but at a cost. That cost is impacting on climate, it's impacting on the high levels of use of fossil fuels that, that we've been seeing, lack of resilience because of, of that, fragility in this system, but also it's contributed to the fact that so many of us now don't know where our food comes from. If we carry on producing and consuming food in the way that we are currently doing and the way we've been doing for the past six or seven decades, then we are going to end up in a crisis situation, not only for the planet and ecosystems and biodiversity loss, but also our own health, our own future. That system cannot continue because it's created too many problems and it's dependent on resources that are disappearing. And it's creating too much damage to the planet and to our health. So. I think change is inevitable because the costs of the current food system are mounting up. Now you've had your potted history of food and agriculture, let's take a look at how we move forward, balancing respect for cultures and natural processes and embracing a science that can help us heal environments and improve our crop health. Q itself acknowledges its colonial past and the deep indigenous and international knowledge that has helped build the collections in London and Sussex and our international science work today. That's why I chose the Palm House for a conversation about where we go next. I hope you don't mind a few hissing misters, by the way. It's the end of July and I'm in a warm, humid environment, surrounded by tall, majestic plants reaching high above me. It feels like a tropical paradise. I can hear mists of water. I can smell the rich, damp earth. I'm in the heart of Kew Gardens, the palm house which was built between 1844 and 1848, home to some decades-old plants. Some of the plants in here are endangered and are even extinct in the wild. 
Many of the plants are incredibly valuable to societies around the world for their fruit, spice, timber and medicinal properties. So for that reason, this is the perfect setting for a very important conversation about our past relationship with food across the centuries. And even more importantly, where we're going with it. I'm about to catch up with Q's Director of Science, Alex Antonelli. I will also be joined by the actor and artist RJ Chabra, who has had a lifelong relationship with Q. RJ is also the artistic director of Nutcut. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Lovely to see you. RJ, tell me how your relationship with Q goes back to childhood. One of my earliest memories is coming to Kew with my family, my mum and my dad and my sisters, and seeing the way in which my parents suddenly changed their body language, their behaviour, because they were immediately being connected with their own childhood. My father grew up in North India and lived and travelled around a lot of India before he came to England in the early 1960s. My mother grew up in Fiji, in the South Pacific, and the Palm House was uh, our starting point, really. From the kind of suburban concrete jungle in which we lived in, Kew was a very special place, and it held very cherished memories of fun days out. My dad had a shop in in Richmond, which is just up the road, uh, just by the bridge in, in the 70s, and it was called the Indian Emporium. But they, he sold all sorts of things, from pasta to ginger, turmeric and everything else in between. And we used to get Q staff who would to say things like, you, know, you can buy these things in a shop just up the road. That is really interesting because I've always found, as somebody that was born in Zimbabwe and having come over here at a young age, I remember my mother having to improvise with certain things like sort of our national dish whereas now years later you can buy it everywhere and do you think migrants almost drive certain foods becoming popular because there's a demand i think that's the foundation of of the way in which we see food production food commodities arriving onto the high street because there's a need of that particular migrant community to find the right taste. Alex, what do you think is not currently working in our relationship with food? Well, I think that food is something that unifies each and every one of us on this planet. I think a lot of our culture derives from food traditions. I still remember very vividly, you know, when I grew up in Brazil, the kind of food that my mother would put on the table and the fantastic fruits we would have every morning and this is something that you carry with you throughout your life. So, on the one hand, we have the very strong associations to particular tastes and particular food. On the other hand, we have the emerging crisis of food insecurity around the world, so that we are almost forced to rethink the way that we think about food and what we consume, and reinvent a bit of the traditions we've had for such a long time. So that's what excites me. As a scientist, we are intrigued by the idea that some food sources have a much lesser impact on the environment than others. And how can we ensure that people still have the cultural aspects of their social lives and, and food as not only a source of nutrients and, and calories, 
but also you know, the pleasure, pleasure associated with eating, but at the same time to do that in a sustainable way. And not least because we are many more people on the planet than we were when I was a child, but also because of climate change and the fact that many of the things we used to consume in the past are no longer suitable for a warmer climate. We have a large proportion of the human population under nutritional levels that are adequate for them. So we have malnourished children, families all around the world in low-income countries. The other half of the world has an almost equally important problem of obesity and another kind of overconsumption that leads to poor health. So striking the right balance here is not an easy task. We at Q have been working on many different plants and we've identified over 7,000 different plant species that are edible and sustainable and consumed locally by different people. At the same time as we know that over half of all calories consumed worldwide come from only three plants and it's wheat, rice and maize. So we have to rethink the way we eat and that's the biggest problem. As a plant historian, this is something that I find absolutely fascinating. If we go back 100, 200 years, 17th, 16th century, 18th century, an awful lot of the plants that we now have in our garden as purely ornamental were initially edible. They, they were cultivated as food plants. I mean, you look at sort of something like the dahlia, for instance. In its indigenous country, that was a food source. And so now we seem to have lost that connection. I personally think this is a massive decade of transition. You know, so these big ideas are coming up, these big choices. It's a process of re-educating. And I think that re-educating process needs to start early. The fact that we have so many plans that have given us solutions to problems throughout our evolution and our history is something that is absolutely fantastic. You can just imagine another planet where there were just a few species and we had to rely on those. And here there's so much uh, yet to discover. So I think we have to understand also the social inequalities. That's something that we at Kiyo are really committed to uh, doing in a different way. And we've been doing that for a long time now, which is really understanding how can we bring equitable benefits. So if you develop new solutions or new crops, that really has to benefit back to the communities that have uh, taken care of those plants for generations. So I think that the, the balance here is much different to what it was in the past. There's no point really looking back and changing history, but I think highlighting some of those stories and telling that to our visitors in a positive and forward-looking way is something that really can bring a new appreciation for nature and biodiversity that is not only about conservation for conservation's sake, but also for our relationship with nature and as part of nature. It's important for people to understand things. If you don't understand something, you can't protect it and you can't value it either. And I think that goes from historic gardens to, you know, the smallest water lily that you might have in the water lily house. I think the word value holds so much weight, you know, because it's the value that we put into the meaning. And then once we feel the meaning, we feel the emotion and then we want to do something about it. And then as a result of that, we bring a critical mass on board. You know, people start enrolling. And I think that's the pivotal point where we're at at the moment. You know, this idea of just telling the story of the story. You know, there are always missing pieces of the jigsaw. 
you know, and it's just finding those missing pieces and putting them, putting them front and center. A lot of people think that the situation is dire, their future doesn't look bright. And if we continue the way we're living our lives, that's exactly the case. But food is the most important key for us to change that relationship. We need to choose carefully what we put on the plate every morning, what we put in for lunch, for, for dinner, because food is really the biggest driver of biodiversity loss across all different groups of species. About one million species are threatened with extinction. But it's again the biggest opportunity as well, because many crops are actually very sustainable. They bring benefits to the people who, who grow different foods, um, and especially plants and, and, and fungi. And by doing so, we will both have a healthier life. It's often very good for your pocket as well, because it's much cheaper to buy beans and different legumes than eat meat, for instance. And it's very good for the environment as well. In the African subcontinent, in the Caribbean, South Asia, in the Middle East, and other parts of the world, they already have you know, some of those memories or those ideas of food production, albeit the allotment you know, next, next to the house. So I think some of the answers lie within our communities and around us. We need some direction. We need some big direction from scientists and we need the big ideas. But that combined with talking to those communities who may have missed a generation, you know, there might have just been a kind of generation which has kind of sidestepped, you know, the being close to nature and, and production. So it's a time to look forward, learn and take action. But as we begin to understand and acknowledge how past actions in food supply and production have led us to the circumstances and issues of the present day, it's not just down to science to save us. We can all unite in sharing conversation and shaping habits that will help to secure our futures. From adjusting our expectations of what we can buy in the supermarket to what our fruit and veg should look like and rekindling our relationships with growing and heritage farming traditions. What plant science can do is give us the innovation and hope that's needed to inform new and better ways of doing things for people and planet, to prevent biodiversity loss, improve livelihoods as well as health and well-being for everyone. In our next episode, James Wong will be starting the journey at home, from our own kitchen cupboard to the ethical and sustainable choices supermarkets can give us and how we tackle the problem of waste. Follow this podcast on your favourite app and stay with us as we unearth more of our foodie future with Royal Botanic Gardens Cube.